Well, this morning, uh, we looked at uh, digital media, looked at spectacles, and kind of gave you a paradigm to think of, of smartphones and, and social media platforms and our uses. This afternoon, I want to go macro, and I want to look at uh, technology in a much broader perspective, um, because this will help answer a lot of the questions that the church faces in uh, living in the most technologically advanced age the world has ever seen. And by that, I mean Tesla cars, genetic uh, medicine, um, nuclear power. I don't know if this power is, is nuclear power, um, but uh, I know at my house, uh, nuclear fission happens, and uh, my computer works. And that's awesome, and uh, it's a gift from God. In our first session, we talked about digital media. In the second uh, session, I want to speak of technology more broadly and share with you the 3,000-year the backstory to Tesla electric cars. And I want to speak of uh, technology more broadly, uh, but the story does not start here in California. Sorry to disappoint. This story begins in America's epicenter of human engineering in the 1740s to New England, home of the Boston Red Sox, the greatest Major League Baseball team on earth, and to the time of Benjamin Franklin and to his lightning rod for a story that's electrifying, filled with lightning and thunder. And uh, in, this, in the 17th and 18th century, churches built steeples high into the sky. And within those steeples, they installed bells. And on those bells was often inscribed some form of the Latin phrase, fulgura frango, translated, I break up the lightning's flashes. Church bells did many things, including suppressing thunderstorms. It became a common practice beginning in the medieval age and extending into the 17th and 18th centuries during a major thunderstorm for local bell ringers to climb up into the church's steeple and ring the church bells loudly. By doing so, they could perhaps, perhaps, ward off the divine wrath and the devilish invasion in the skies. That was the theory. But the theory was plagued by two design fails. First, the bells were cast metal. And second, those cast metal bells hung in the steeple, usually the town's highest point. So you can imagine how well this worked out for the bell ringers. In France and Belgium alone, over the span of just three decades, 30 years, nearly 400 bell towers were hit by lightning. Many of them burned down, killing more than 100 bell ringers. In a twist of irony, during thunderstorms, townspeople were encouraged to keep their distance from churches. While the town's pubs and shadier establishments almost always escaped untouched from the divine displeasure in the tempest. So bell ringers were not fans of steeples and thunderstorms, but one man loved them. Benjamin Franklin loved them. For him, the steeple was the perfect focal point for his lightning experience. He loved them. Franklin came to understand that storm clouds contained electrical charges, notwithstanding their heavy loads of water. Even though electricity was a fire, he theorized, it was a different kind of fire, one that could coexist with water. Okay, so that's what in the 1740s are trying to figure out how does fire and water coexist in the sky? 
So Benjamin Franklin developed the concept of a lightning rod to protect structures from fire by drawing off the electrical charge. By 1750, he was proving his theory to be true. He made little miniature houses and he put gunpowder inside of them, and then he'd strike that little house with a spark. And the mini house would explode. <laughs> and then he would create a second little mini house, fill it full of gunpowder, but he would put a little wire on it, a little grounding wire. And then he would hit it with a spark, nothing would happen. Hit it with a spark, nothing would happen. Hit it with a spark, nothing would happen. But even as the evidence became indisputable, Franklin's invention raised theological alarm bells. One pastor in Boston proposed that if you diverted God's wrath of lightning into the earth, it would simply supercharge future earthquakes. In fact, a major earthquake hit New England soon after Franklin began diverting bolts into the ground, seeming to prove his point true. John Adams, a future president of the United States, summarized what he was hearing from leaders in New England at the time that the lightning rod was, quote, an impious attempt to rob the Almighty of his thunder to wrest the bolt of vengeance out of his hand, end quote. Across the Atlantic Ocean, the French, who loved Franklin, more eagerly, eagerly, more eagerly adopted his lightning rod. But even there, the French pastor and famous physicist Jean-Antoine Nollet, who bought in 100% to the rod's effectiveness, refused to adopt it, saying the rod was, quote, an impious, as impious to ward off heaven's lightnings as for a child to ward off the chastening rod of his Father, end quote. To his dismay, Benjamin Franklin found himself locked inside of a big theology debate in 1740 New England. The more scientists knew about the workings of lightning and electricity, the less mysterious these phenomena appeared. The more one could control lightning's fury, the less vulnerable the world seemed before God's wrath. Franklin, it seemed, was stealing God's thunder. His lightning rod sparked a debate that split the 18th century. Is the lightning rod on a church steeple an act of faith, or is it an act of God thwarting unbelief? That's the debate I want to settle this afternoon. Because if we can settle this, I think we can get clarity on electric cars and resolve one key tension that Christians face inside the epicenter of the most highly advanced technological society the world has ever seen. That's what we're hoping to do this afternoon, all right? And to understand our latest tech, we turn to an old book, the book of Job. Job is an ancient book, uh, perhaps the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, it's about the sufferings of a man named Job. Job is a kingly figure, uh, a wealthy man, perhaps he's a local ruler, and then his life is upended partly due to a major storm brought by Satan and permitted by God. In Job, we find the longest and the most vivid sermon in the Bible on thunderstorms from a young man named Elihu. Elihu is the youngest of Job's friends, and because he's one of Job's friend, friends, we can put an asterisk on everything he says, although he seems to especially be trustworthy of all the friends. But Elihu is not an infallible prophet here. He's not an infallible prophet. He's not a professional theologian. 
He's just a relatively trustworthy guy who affirms God's sovereignty over all things as he tries to figure out how weather patterns work. Elihu is a forerunner to Ben Franklin. And so thunderstorms are a major theme in the book of Job. At the start, Job had 7,000 sheep and a very many, many servants, we're told, but then lightning, lightning hit and the fire of God fell from heaven, we're told, and it burned up his 7,000 sheep and consumed his many servants. Job chapter 1, verses 3 and 16. So a storm of huge magnitude has already shattered Job's life at the start of the book, and now we jump into the story at the end of the book. A second storm is now brewing. God will soon speak from a second thunderstorm, beginning in chapter 38. But in chapters 36 and 37, this thunderstorm is still gathering in the background. Okay, So imagine Elihu, who is like the, the final human voice in Job, in the last speech of the book, setting up God's dramatic entrance, and that's our scene. So we find Elihu preaching on lightning as a thunderstorm brews behind him. Distant thunder is growling, the winds are picking up, the sun is shrouded over by the clouds, and lightning is marching closer and closer to Job as Elihu preaches this sermon on thunderstorms. And God will speak from this storm directly to Job in a moment. So this is the dramatic context of what we're going to hear now from Elihu as we study Job 36, verse 24 and following. I'll be reading and preaching from the ESV translation. In this thunderstorm, we marvel at God, we exult over his power, and we witness his direct actions in creation. And we pick up Elihu's sermon here as he speaks to his friend Job in chapter 36, verse 24. Here we go. Remember to extol his works, Job. He's talking about thunderstorms. Of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. God's unsearchable in his age. So we meet the theme of this text here in these first few verses. Storms and God. God is eternal spirit, holy other than us, ancient, wise, a mystery beyond our understanding. But storms and natural laws are different we can learn from them within limits. That's what Elihu says. The natural world is hard to understand, but not because it cannot be known, but because it's all happening from afar, far away, far up in the sky. So Elihu wants to investigate God's works in nature, but he can only see nature from a distance. Okay, this is the conundrum Elihu is facing. Now, we understand the natural world today because we can zoom in close to it. Right? Weather balloons and drones and satellites and telescopes and microscopes, proximity is our scientific advantage. We get close to storms, and Elihu doesn't have any of those advantages, but he still wants to study the, war the, the, the storms, study the, the weather patterns, and understand how nature works. That's what, what drives Elihu in this sermon. And yet this distance doesn't stop Elihu from investigating nature. Verse 27, for he... God draws up drops of water. They distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Okay, this is amazing. 
Elihu delivers a, a proto-scientific definition of how evaporation works. He's onto it. It's primitive, but he's onto how atmospheric water patterns work. He does not understand evaporation as we understand it today, but he's pressing into a natural phenomenon with a, the scientific curiosity that will eventually lead to the discovery of evaporation, a law set in place by the Creator. So he's inquiring into the atmospheric phenomena at play. How does this work? Elihu wants to know. He wants to figure this out. And as Elihu works to figure out storms, notice that he clings to two truths at the same time. God is invisible, but he, he is majestically present in his creation. God is invisible, and he's majestically present in his creation. And that's what I want you to see over, all over this text. We can't see God but we can see his actions. So Elihu investigates nature far off and full of mystery, but he knows this much. Every lightning strike is fired directly by God and is aimed at a specific target. That's what we see next. This is incredible. Verse 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? So again, there's, there's mystery here for Elihu. He's trying to figure it out, but there's still mystery to him. Verse 30, behold, he, God, he scatters his lightning about him. Where lightning, where lightning bolts are, God is. He scatters his lightnings about him and covers the roots of the sea. Or literally, he uncovers the roots of the sea. Uh, he, uh, a lightning strike hits the sea, hits the water, and for a second, it, it illuminates what's under the water as the lightning hits the water. You can see under it. It exposes the roots of the sea. That's amazing. I mean, where did Elihu see that? That's incredible. I'd love to see that. So you see the sea is illuminated for just a flash of a moment. Verse 31, for by these bolts, he judges people and he gives food in abundance. So Elihu doesn't fully understand weather patterns, but he knows enough to see that rain gives food to all creatures. And that blessing is connected to lightning. And that lightning is connected to God. So on one hand, yes, the lightning expresses God's displeasure. But lightning also expresses God's love. Lightning judges and lightning feeds. Lightning is complex. But in every single bolt... God is present. Look at this incredible statement, verse 32. He, God, covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike its mark. God's hands are charged with crackling lightning. You can't help here but think of Zeus and his thunderbolt, the most powerful, unrivaled weapon feared among the pagan gods or the storm gods of Elihu's age who held lightning bolts in their hands, the ultimate power. Those fictional characters are one-dimensional, but the living God of the universe truly holds thunderbolts in his hands. And not only does he hold them, he shoots them. And not only does he shoot them, he aims them, and not only does he aim them, this forked and jagged 
fire from heaven nails its bullseye every single time. God never misses. And this is what led to the utter confusion of Bible-believing Christians in New England. The town bar is never tasered, but the church bells are bullseyes. What gives? Whatever else lightning is, it's never less than the presence of God shown to us in the natural world. God is here. God is speaking. Verse 33. It's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. So thunder from the skies triggers a thunderstorm inside of Elihu's chest. It does for us too, right? This, this past summer, uh, we were driving home late in the desert watching cloud-to-cloud strikes uh, of a huge thunderstorm west of Phoenix, about 20-mile long bolts. I mean, just coursing back and forth in the night sky, strobing silently. You couldn't even hear them. They were so far away. And uh, my son, as we were driving, he turned to me and said, Dad, every time I see that lightning bolt in the sky, something inside of me moves, right? Like we feel the thunderstorm inside of our chest when we're that close to lightning, when we see lightning. Elihu says, yeah, same for Elihu. Lightning sets off an internal thunder within us. Verse 2, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that come from his mouth. I mean, it's so personal over and over. That that deep growl you hear in the distant storm as it marches closer and closer under the whole heaven. He, God, lets it go in his lightnings to the corners of the earth. So now Elihu is saying, have you ever been in a thunderstorm where there's lightning hitting to your north, south, east, and west? Every corner, there's lightning hitting around you. And when a, a, a bolt flashes and it's close, and you know it's close. I don't know if you do this on the West Coast. In the mid- Midwest where I was growing up, when the lightning flash was seen, you start counting, right? One, 1,000, two, 1,000, because every second was like a mile. So you're like counting off the miles, right? One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, boom, verse four. After it, after the bolt, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Verse 5, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Just those personal references. He's doing this. He does this. It's his hands, his voice, his volition. Again, Elihu is not saying that we cannot understand nature. He's saying that we cannot fully understand God's purposes in nature. And we certainly cannot stop God's fire from the sky. We sense our powerlessness in it. And yet every peal of thunder is the voice of God speaking. Back to Job, who was suffering in dust and ashes. Job's bitter complaint complaint was that God had left him, that God had disappeared. Is that thunder? Did you hear it? That's awesome. (laughs) Job is suffering in dust and ashes and his bitter complaint was that God had left him in the dark and disappeared but Elihu corrects Job God didn't abandon Job he's no absentee creator God is here 
and God's closeness echoes in the skies with every peal of thunder like the one we just heard. This is a point that's made in all four seasons. Verse six, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man. Literally, God handcuffs every man that all men may, whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs. For seven and eight, amazing. By inclement weather, God seals the hands of every man. With his storms, he zip ties our hands, okay? And he places us under house arrest. That's what Elihu is saying here. Or as the NIV says, he stops all people from their labors using inclement weather. Blizzards and monsoons shut people inside of their homes and beasts inside of their caves. So God commands dumps of snow and torrents of rain. Why? Because he's positioning and repositioning all of his creatures as if on a chessboard. He uses weather for that. All four seasons God uses his creation to guide the work of man. Major weather disruptions are one of God's means to guide his creatures to where he wants them. Delayed flights, canceled meetings, viruses. If God chose to keep us inside for all of 2020, he could do it. No hard thing for him to pull off. God governs the business of his creatures through his created order and very often through weather patterns. He governs our travels through the snow, ice, lightning storms, power outages, flooding, you name it. All the seasons are included, but especially winter. Verse 9. For his chamber comes the whirlwind and the cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. And then, of course, again, God wields his lightning. Verse 11, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightnings. Again, we've seen this. Elihu is on to evaporation, right? Water goes up, makes clouds thicken, and then lightning strikes, and that same water pours back down. Elihu gets it. And IV translates this verse, God loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. So God shoots lightning from his hands, and he shoots them through an atmospheric channel. You see that? You see what Elihu is doing here? God shoots lightning directly from his hand and through a cloud. It's the same thing. Elihu is doing something remarkable here by making two points at the same time. One, the unseen God is here. And two, his presence is mediated in the natural laws that govern the skies. He's here, he's in charge, and he's leading storms like a leashed dog. Verse 12, they, clouds loaded with water and fire, turn around and around by his guidance. God has leashed them like a dog on a, on a walk. Thunderstorms are like a leashed dog in God's hands. Why? To accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. God harnesses the storm, he leads it, he directs it so that every lightning bolt fulfills his will for the creation. So what is his will? Three things. In verse 13, God's will in the lightning bolt is seen in three ways. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, has said. 
whether for correction or for his land or for love, his said covenant love, he causes it to happen. So beyond God's repositioning of his creatures, lightning fulfills his will in three other ways. One, he uses bolts to chasten and to correct sinners. Number two, he shoots bolts to rain down blessings on the thirsty land to feed all of his creatures, including us. That meal that we just enjoyed, how many thunderstorms did it take to produce that meal, right? His love is in the thunderstorms that produce the fruits and vegetables and the the meat that we eat. And number three, he sends bolts for love, for love. Lightning expresses God's said, loyal, undying, covenantal love. So if you can only imagine God and lightning in a one-dimensional context like Zeus, some angry God firing off a pistol of lightning to whoever aggregates him, aggravates him the most, you'll miss the love of God in the lightning bolt. None of this means that it's easy to interpret what each storm means. This is the lie he was point. We know that God sends the storms, but we don't know exactly why, and trying to figure out God's intent and providence is a dangerous task. It's hard. That's not easy. God's will is complex. So Elihu is throwing serious side-eye to Job's older friends who tried to draw definite conclusions from Job's misfortunes. And Elihu is saying the will of God and providence is way more complex than just saying, oh, I know why God made that happen in your life. Okay. Elihu is very wise here in interpreting providence by giving us three or four uh, ways to interpret the lightning. Now, finally, as the storm builds up to God's speech, Elihu makes eye contact with his suffering friend, Job, in verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Job desperately needs to realign his attitude. Uh, But what can change Job's attitude in suffering? Consider the wonders of God in the natural world. This is a preview of what God is about to unleash in Job 38 to 42. He will speak to Job from a storm to remind Job of wonder after wonder after wonder in his creation. But we end Job's story here. Elihu is trying to understand lightning. He is an observant man of faith. He trusts in God. He marvels at the patterns that he sees in the atmosphere. He's, a, he's the Bible's Ben Franklin, <laughs> but with much better theology. But he's very much wired like Ben Franklin. And he's asking his friend Job, Job, why? Job, do you know how lightning works? Do you know how the lightning works? Do you know about the electricity in the clouds like a battery that can hold a charge until it's time to fire a bolt? Can you explain how water and fire coexist in the sky? And for Job and for Elihu, no, there's no answer. These are great mysteries for them. But for us, it's not a great mystery. We understand how a lot of this works, and that's where the tension with science arises. And so we need to move from Elihu to Ben Franklin to Nikola Tesla and down to the Tesla Model X today. And let me do that with six brief takeaways as we conclude this message. Number one, God fires every lightning bolt. He never misses. He never misses. God shoots lightning from his hands to a bullseye every 
single time. Elihu makes this clear, and his words are confirmed by other Old Testament texts as well, uh, namely Psalm 135 and Jeremiah 10. Psalm 135 and Jeremiah 10 make this expressly clear as well. For some, this is news to you. This is maybe a missing piece of your theology. God is present in lightning bolts. That's not pagan superstition. That is biblical orthodoxy. Point number two. God fires every lightning bolt through atmospheric channels. He ordains the means. God shoots lightning from his hands to a bullseye every single time, but this sovereign marvel does not stop Elihu's curiosity. He still searches for the atmospheric means, the atmospheric means God uses in thunderstorms. Providence drives him into natural sciences, not away from them. Elihu is both trying to unriddle the mystery of God's providence in the storm, and he's trying to unriddle the atmospheric mechanics of how a storm works. Okay, He's doing both at the very same time. That's what makes Elihu so remarkable. You can pursue science and believe in God without contradiction. So Elihu is simultaneously seeking to decipher the voice of God in atmospheric physics at the same time. The invisible world and the visible world. The spirit realm and the physical realm. The laws of providence and the laws of nature. There's no contradiction in Elihu's mind in working those things out. He's modeling faith-filled science because those work in tandem. Number three, God governs every natural law. We ignore them to our peril. God governs every natural law. We ignore them to our peril. God governs his creation by certain fixed laws. Do those laws bend and make allowances for our mistakes? No, they don't bend says the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Every violation of them is avenged. Spurgeon says of the laws of lightning, uh, offering this grisly example. This is a grisly example. It comes from the sermons of Spurgeon. He used it in in a a sermon, so why can't I use it in a sermon, right? Um, Spurgeon says this of the laws of lightning. Quote, The simple countryman, in his ignorance of the laws of electricity, is overtaken by a pelting storm. And to escape from the drenching rain, he runs beneath some lofty tree to screen himself beneath its spreading branches. It is a law of nature that elevated points should attract the lightning. The man does not know this. He does not intend to defy his maker's natural law. But for all that, when the death-dealing fluid splits the tree, it leaves a senseless corpse. The law does not suspend its operations, although that man may be the husband upon whose life the bread of many children may depend. Though he may have been one of the most guileless and prayerful of mankind, though he may have been utterly unconscious of having exposed himself to the force of a physical law of God, yet still he dies, for he has placed himself in the way of a settled law of nature, and it takes its course. The natural law is fixed. Be dumb with lightning and it will cost you perhaps with your life. Don't be dumb with the fixed natural laws. That's dangerous and deadly. Fear God, fear nature. 
Number four, fear drives our inventors. Fear drives our inventors. Necessity is the mother of invention, and so is fear. Fear is a mother of invention. One way God ignites science and innovation is through fear. He uses all sorts of human desires to motivate our discoveries into this creation, but fear is a biggie. Our fear drives us to understand, and understanding leads to discovery. So why do we understand electricity today? Because humans face the sheer power of lightning, and we're motivated to engineer as a response. Fear drives man into God's created patterns, and that fear is how you end up with the lightning rod. Number five, lightning rod strikes, obey God. Lightning rod strikes, obey God. So if God commands each bolt, it would be an act of unbelief to divert that bolt with a lightning rod, right? That's the question we're back to. And the answer is no. No. Actually, God teaches us to make lightning rods. To divert the lightning is not an act of unbelief, but one that can be made in faith. This is because, as theologian Abraham Kuyper writes, quote, when God accumulates electricity in the clouds and the possibility increases of a lightning strike that might endanger the lives of a family or their property, we are not only permitted but obligated to apply every means available to avert or at least mitigate this danger. It is none other than God himself who has included within nature this means to divert the lightning. And when a dangerous bolt of lightning travels down along the metal rod and terminates in the ground, it is God himself who guides the lightning along that rod and who smothers the enormous spark in the earth. Humankind does not do this, and Satan does not do this. It is God, and whoever honors God's majesty in the lightning that flashes, yet does not honor the majesty with which God draws this flashing lightning to the rod, grounding and guiding it away, takes from God half the honor do him. Whoa. That's a game-changing quote. When you realize in creation, there was not only lightning, but there was the material for lightning rods given by the creator, changes how we think of lightning. God gets the glory for the lightning rod, and God gets the glory for the lightning. Realize this. No bolt travels harmlessly down a lightning rod unless God directs it that way through the innovation of man. When the bolt travels down the rod, God has guided it there. This is the key theological point that was missing from 1740, 1750 New England. And for many Christians today who fear that human innovation strong arms God or makes him look weak, That's a myth. New tech never bullies our sovereign God. Can't. It reveals more of him. It reveals more of his patterns in creation. It reveals more of his generosity to us, leading to point number six. 
No one sees God's love in lightning like we do. No one sees God's love in lightning like we do. Once Ben Franklin proved decisively with a kite that clouds hold an electric charge, dumb idea, right? (laughs) Don't fly a kite uh, near a cloud. But once he proved that a cloud held an electric charge like a huge battery in the sky, he opened a floodgate of new human innovation. We could make battery farms. We could envision man-made lightning bolts to power cities. And the power we now recognize in electricity, God had already hidden in nature from the very first hour of paradise. The electrified age was hidden by God in the lightning bolt from the beginning of time. In due time, innovators were ordained to discover electricity and to electrify cities and industries. Though in doing so, they added nothing new to creation. The power was there all along. And if we had failed to harness electricity, we would have deprived God of the honor due to him. Electricity was hidden for millennia in the lightning bolt, a harness power that changed the world forever. In electricity, we give God glory for lightning in ways that lightning alone cannot bring. Human innovation, the harnessing of this creation, magnifies the creator's brilliance more than a simple lightning storm. That's the highest value and purpose possible for human technology, to disclose more of the creator's brilliance, whether that's electricity or whether that's in the 60 elements taken from creation and compressed into what we call a smartphone. So Ben Franklin did not steal God's thunder. No, he discovered lightning, diverted it, and introduced the world to electricity at the scale of what would eventually power cities. Electricity was not invented by Ben Franklin. It was not invented by people with the last names of Watts or Amper or Volta or Faraday or Ohm or Tesla. No, these innovators were raised up by God at the right time to discover and to divert and to harness what was hidden in plain sight from the beginning of creation. God was hiding electricity all along in lightning. Electricity was hidden in the bolt awaiting a discoverer. And once we did, the age of electrification began, a watershed moment in human history, the electrified age, and added nothing new to God's creation. It was there all along. God used the fear of lightning to drive us to discover what now powers this room. The natural lightning bolt that tears through the sky and the artificial lightning bolt and the power plant that cause our lights to work at night are equally from God. Yes, he uses means. Yes, he uses clouds. Yes, he uses power plants. But if Elihu were here today, he would say, behold the love of God in the lightning bolt coursing through the wires of Simi Valley, a power hidden in creation from day one in the lightning bolt. So why why does your smartphone have power right now? Hopefully it has some power left. Where'd that power come from? The loyal has said covenant love of God. Here's a summary of the process. It's a lot, I know, it's a lot. 
for a Saturday afternoon. That's a lot. Human fear of God in lightning drives us to discover the love of God in electricity. Elihu had no idea how much of God's love to us was charged into the lightning rod, into the lightning bolt. He could have never predicted God's love to thousands of COVID sufferers whose lives would be saved by ventilators. He could not have imagined God's love in millions of heart defibrillators and pacemakers or in lights or in air conditioning or dishwashers or computers or smartphones, televisions, electric cars, all the electrified things we take for granted every single day. All of them originated in the first cause of the electrified age in the lightning bolt. Elihu could never have imagined that electricity hidden in lightning is animation, a life force, an invisible force coursing through wires to power farms and cities and homes and tools and industry, and now nearly impossible for us to think of life without electricity. Most of our jobs and hobbies and ministries are only possible because of it. So the challenge for us is this. Don't ignore the God of the lightning bolt. Don't take electricity from creation without giving your awe to the creator who created every bolt of energy. Don't hear the voice of God in lightning and then grow deaf to his glory and his love to us in the electricity powering our lives every single day. As we see in Elihu himself, the utter transcendence and all-sufficiency of God does not stop us from investigating natural causes. It pushes us into the science of understanding how the means work. So we study physics, and we study quantum physics, and we study atmospheric phenomena. We harness those powers, and then we use them to disclose more of the glory of God in his created order. So don't be done with electricity. Don't stand under a tree in a lightning storm. And don't use electricity to ignore the God who patterned electricity and who gave you this gift out of his kindness. Put lightning rods on your steeples, direct the lightning, redirect the lightning, harness its power, make electric cars, and use every watt of power to do what lightning was always intended to do, to showcase the majesty and the uniqueness and the glory and the beauty of the creator who loves us lavishly with good gifts. Let's pray. Lord, your lightning is awesome. Electricity is amazing. It's a gift we take for granted every single day, but it pales uh, now in comparison with, with the power of what we do now. Prayer is like a lightning rod of sorts. When we pray, our prayers pierce through the clouds and bring down a mighty power from on high. Yes, it does. Even more graphically, the lightning rod is a, a metaphor for the cross of Jesus Christ. When your just wrath gathered over us like a swirling dark storm, did we have any escape? Did we have any place to hide? We didn't. There's nowhere to hide. Sinners are exposed unless we flee to the safety of the cross. And like a lightning rod in the storm, the cross takes into itself all of the death from the lightning and all the fury from the tempest. The skies boom as the, the law thunders a perfect justice over us to be avenged upon us. And we're guilty, but in Christ we can look up with calm delight, for we are safe beneath the cross. This is the most important discovery we can ever make in this life. And yet in the natural elements of this world, we hear your voice, we hear your chastening, we hear your abounding goodness to all your creatures, and we hear your love to us all in the lightning bolt. 
May we use all of life, all of the means, all of the science, all of the electricity, all of our battery-powered gadgets, use all of them to live our lives proclaiming your love and the greatness of Jesus Christ, the maker of all things in heaven and on earth, the true inventor, the true inventor of electricity. In his name we pray. Amen.